Every episode of this podcast is about true things that have happened at some point or another on this planet. Each episode is different than the next, and they are each centered around stories that are odd, outlandish, or of the occult. This podcast will include foul language. This podcast may also include themes of graphic content such as murder, rape, or gore. Listener's discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Seven Circles with Autumn and Dan. I am Autumn and this is Dan. Hello. So today we have a true crime story. Let me start by saying that I really wanted to do a true crime podcast, but the world of podcasting really just doesn't need another fucking true crime pod. There are just so many out there, and a lot of them are very, very good. They most certainly are. When I decided that I wanted to start a podcast, I thought to myself, Self, what kind of topics do you want to cover? What should this whole thing be about? And, in true autumn fashion, I couldn't decide on just one theme. So I said, fuck it, I'll just do a potpourri of weird shit. But I will absolutely throw out a true crime episode every once in a while, if it's a case that I'm really interested in. Potpourri? Potpourri. Potpourri. You know, the stuff that's just like a mixture of smells. And I'm all too familiar with what potpourri is. I'm just, I've never heard it used in that fashion. I enjoyed it, though. Carry okay. on. Well, Carry here we on. are. This is America. We use yeah. potpourri in this fashion. Okay, good stuff. So with that said, let us tell you the story of Paul Bateson. Paul was born in Lansdale, Pennsylvania on August 24th, 1940. From what I could tell, his childhood was not too traumatic. There is not a lot of information out there though, so I'm not too sure. All I can say is that his father was a little strict and wanted Paul to have a good education. So when Paul wanted to do things like go to the movies with his friends, his dad always told him no. And instead, he forced him to stay home and listen to opera. Oof. That's enough to drive anyone to murder. Indeed. And the opera music actually drove Paul crazy enough to leave home and join the army. I mean, that's not quite the type of murder I meant, but I guess you got to start somewhere. Yeah, and a fun fact is about uh, 30% of all serial killers, all known serial killers, actually were in the military. Ha! I'm shocked. I honestly thought that number would be higher, but when I did the research, <laughs> it's around 30%. Ha! <laughs> well, they're doing well then. Yes. Good for them. So Paul was stationed in Germany, and this was the early 1960s, so the U.S. would not be involved in an actual war for about another decade. Paul got very bored very quickly and turned to the booze. And, reportedly, that's all he did during his time in the army. He drank. He was discharged after a few years and moved back home to Pennsylvania, where he promptly quit drinking and enrolled in college. Wait, he went to college and quit drinking? This dude's doing it all wrong. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, usually the, it's usually the other way around, right? You go to college and you start drinking. From experience, yes. 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 So now it's 1964 and Paul is 24 years old. He moves to New York City from Lansdale and starts to train as a neurological radiological technician. Neurological radiological technician. There you go. That's that one. the one. Good job, though. Good we're job. Just, we're just going to call him a rad tech. While in school, he met his first boyfriend, who was a musician and a heavy drinker. Paul started drinking again, presumably to keep up with his new beau, and the two of them liked to party. The boyfriend also introduced Paul to the leather nightclub scene in New York City. What, what are you doing? The YMCA dance? The, 
the YMCA dance. Yeah. Okay, why? It just seemed appropriate. Okay. Seriously, though, that must have been a rough era to have been of that particular orientation. Probably. Gosh. Yeah. So their relationship lasted from 1964 until 1973. During that time, Paul's mother and brother both passed away, which made Paul dive even more heavily into the drinking and the club scene. Paul stayed in school, though, and eventually scored a job as a rad tech. You mean a neurological radiological technician? Yes, one of those. At New York University Medical Center. Good for him. So... Paul is just enjoying a normal day at work when he meets this guy called William Friedkin. William was about to start filming a little film entitled The Exorcist. Even though the story takes place in D.C., the majority of it was actually shot in New York. So Mr. Friedkin was out scouting hospitals in the city because the film was supposed to contain some medical scenes and he wanted to make sure that the scenes were all as authentic as possible. He also was scouting for medical professionals to act as extras in the scenes. When William visited NYUMC, he was invited to view a procedure called cerebral angiography. Oh, one more time. Cerebral angiography. Oh, you got the second part right and you got the easy bit wrong. One more time. It's hard to say them both. Okay. Cerebral angiography. Wow, there you go. That was another mouthful right there, but you're, you're doing well at these today. Thank you. Yeah. These days, this procedure is performed by inserting a catheter into the artery in the leg or arm in order to inject a contrast agent so that the blood vessels can be better viewed on an x-ray. At the time, though, this meant puncturing the patient's carotid artery. The carotid artery, in case you did not know, is in the neck. What happens when that artery gets punctured? Blood. Blood spurts out in little jets from the moment of puncture until they insert the catheter. So it's only a few seconds and a few little spurts of blood, but this was enough for Mr. Friedkin to want to add this scene to his film. Ah, a man after my own heart. Billy Friedkin and I could have been friends, I reckon. Do you think they call him Billy? They might now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good old Billy Friedkin. (laughs) The planets and stars aligned, and so it was that Paul Bateson was the rad tech who assisted in the cerebral angiography that Friedkin observed that day. William was very impressed with Paul's bedside manner. Ironic much. Did he use a frying pan? Shh, we're gonna get to that. Oh, sorry. William was so impressed that he cast him in the film to play the same role as a rad tech slash nurse. And so it went. Paul was cast and they filmed the scene. You can actually watch the scene on YouTube, or you can do what we did and revisit the film itself, or just watch it for the first time. If you haven't seen The Exorcist yet, what are you doing with your life? Right? I've seen that movie so many, many times, but not for a couple of decades until now, and I did not have higher hopes that it would have stood the test of time, but boy was I wrong. Oh yeah, I actually fell asleep when we when we rewatched that. You're not agreeing with what I'm saying here. No, I'm not. I mean, I like the movie, (laughs) but I fell asleep because I've seen it so many times. Anyways, so while I was digging around on YouTube, I also found some behind-the-scenes footage. There are shots of Paul Bateson and Linda Blair, and they are just laughing and having a good time. There is even one shot where Linda is drinking a beverage and Paul is massaging her shoulders. 
I wonder if he was publicly out and she felt safe, or if he was just a nice fella. Maybe he was just a nice fella and he was publicly out. Why not both? That's also an option. So, shortly after The Exorcist was released, Paul's drinking escalated so much so that he lost his job at NYUMC. Nyunk? Nyunk. Okay. His drinking had become so bad that he could not find work at another hospital, so instead, Paul began working at the door at various gay nightclubs and bars in the city. We don't know much about Paul's life in between the years of 1975 and 1977, as he did not keep a journal and the internet was not around for him to be able to post his every thought for the whole world to see. Nobody got to see what he had for breakfast every day? Sad emoticon. Wait. They still called emoticons? Shit. Um, I don't know. What are they called? I don't know. We're we getting old. We're, we are very much getting old. Holy crap. <laughs> so then, on September 14th, 1977, a man named Addison Verrill was found dead in his Horatio Street apartment. He had been badly beaten and stabbed multiple times. Including with a knife. It, yes, including with a knife. <laughs> There was a sign of a small struggle, but nothing of value had seemed to be taken at that time. And there was no evidence of forced entry either. (laughs) (laughs) These things all normally add up to the same conclusion, though. Addison had been murdered by someone he knew. I love it when you're all Sherlock (laughs) Holmesy. Addison Verrill had been a reporter for Variety magazine. He specialized in the film industry. Being a reporter, Addison, of course, had friends who were also journalists. One of these friends covered his case in the Village Voice, which is a New York newspaper that specializes in alternative news. That's the village, as in the village people. It is? It is. Huh. Huh. So this friend's name was Arthur Bell, and not only was he a prominent journalist, but he was also a gay activist. Around this time, there had been a string of murders happening in the area called the Bag Murders. These were all gay men that were being killed, dismembered, and put into black plastic trash bags and being dumped into the Hudson River. (laughs) I mean, that is very sad, but I'm still glad those are the kind of bags that were the murder's namesake. Yeesh. What kind of bags were you thinking? Well, there were murders and dismemberment. I mean, there are bags with balls in them, and... I don't want mine to be dismembered. Oh, noted. Okay. No, yeah, no, yeah, noted like like you were giving it consideration. Never. Oh, I'm keeping knives away from you. I would never. Pfft. Okay, so Arthur Bell had been covering this story, but police and reporters, however, had not been taking the killing seriously, saying that every single one of them was the result of a sexual encounter that had gone wrong. I mean, they were not technically incorrect, were they? Ignorantly dismissive, yes. Incorrect, Mm. not really. So Arthur was determined to find justice for his friend, and he put every detail that he had in the article about his friend's murder. He ended the article with the phone number for the New York Police Department's homicide hotline asking anyone with any info to just please call even (laughs) anonymously. Anomaly? Anomaly. Anonymously. There you go, you got it. So eight days later, Bell received a phone call on his own direct line. 
This caller had claimed to be the guy who killed Addison Verrill and had called Bell to correct some of the things he had said in the article by telling him, like, I like your story and I liked your writing, but I'm not a psychopath. And I'm gay and I needed money and I'm an alcoholic. This caller was Paul Bateson. Wow, that kind of call is going to fuck up your day. Seriously. So during the phone call, Bateson goes on to say that on September 14th, after three months of sobriety, he had gone out to the Badlands, a Christopher Street bar. This is where he met Beryl. Addison offered to buy Paul a beer, and he accepted. That beer became many, with both of them doing some poppers and coke as the night went on. So at 3 a.m., they left the Badlands and went over to the Mineshaft. <laughs> the Mineshaft is the name of a bar. Oh, okay, sorry. And they continued to party it up. Bateson said that he was impressed by how popular his companion was. Veryl seemed like a star, and Paul was into it and wanted to go home with him. After two hours, they took a taxi to Veryl's apartment. Veryl told Paul that he couldn't stay out much later because he had work to do the following morning. Beer? Poppers? Blow? This is a responsible fella. I mean, it sounds like they were having a lot of fun, honestly. Well, there you go. Bateson goes on to say that the two had more alcohol and cocaine, followed by sex at 7.30 a.m. Veryl then tried to make Paul leave, but Paul hated the rejection and didn't want to leave. Instead of leaving, Bateson grabbed a frying pan and beat Addison Veryl in the head with it until he was unconscious. He then stabbed him in the heart. After the killing, Paul said that he took all of Veryl's cash, which totaled to about $243 in nowadays monies, and he also took his credit card, passport, and some clothes. Clean clothes or dirty clothes? Maybe both? Who okay. knows? Arthur Bell was stunned after hanging up the phone. I would also be quite shook if someone called my personal number and claimed to have killed my friend. When Bell contacted the police about the call, they told him that it seemed like the first solid lead they had in the case. Bateson had known about the stolen credit card, a detail that the police had not made public. He had also described a white substance found on the floor of Verrill's apartment as Crisco, a shortening frequently used at the time by gay men as a sexual lubricant. Police had not been able to identify it and had also not made the information public. At least it still resembled Crisco and not Nutella. Was Nutella even a thing back then? I mean, it was. It was? I, I'm sure it must have been. I didn't even know about Nutella until, not like, that, 2010. Not that you'd use it as, as lubricant, Well, no, but, like, was it invented back then? Invented? I mean... Did they use it? Was chocolatey spread a thing? I mean, was, it was hazelnut. It was. Was Nutella the brand a thing? It's on there. I'm gonna say yes. Yes? Maybe. Hmm. Let's um, stick to the facts. Okay. So how did Bateson get caught? He never told Arthur Bell his name, but the cops figured that he would call Bell again and talk about the murder some more. So a few officers went to Bell's apartment and hung around waiting for a call that might or might not happen. A call did happen. Some guy named Mitch called at 11 p.m. He said that he was in rehab with Paul Bateson and Paul had confessed to him about the murder. The cops then went over to Bateson's place, and Paul was so hammered that he just let them in, and they arrested him on the spot. No phone tapping? No high-speed car chase? What an anticlimax. 
Kind of like getting hit over the head with a frying pan instead of getting more action, I guess. <laughs> Indeed. So while he was detained and awaiting trial, it is rumored that Bateson would brag to other detainees about all the killings he had done, not just the killing of Addison Verrill. They said that he bragged about dismembering men and dumping them into the Hudson River, but there was never any evidence to prove that he actually did those things. Some people say that they did things they didn't do at all, just for the attention even if that means possible extra prison time. Like that time we snuck into the White House and shat in Trump's peanut butter. Shh, you're not supposed to tell people about that. We're going to get in so much trouble. Oh, no. Oh, gosh. In 1979, Bateson was convicted of the murder of film industry journalist Addison Verrill and sentenced to a minimum of 20 years in prison. So there's a film starring Al Pacino called Cruising that was loosely based off of a book with the same title. The book was about a serial killer targeting gay men, in particular those associated with the leather scene in the 1970s, which is a thing that really happened, and the killer is still at large, and we're talking about the bag murders. Some people think that it was Paul Bateson who actually committed these crimes. And a fun fact about cruising, it was filmed by the same bloke who filmed The Exorcist, William Friedkin. Good old Billy Friedkin. Good old Billy. Good old Billy. Apparently, Mr. Friedkin heard about Bateson's conviction at the same time he was filming Cruising, and he went to visit him at Rikers Island. This sounds sus. Very, very sus. Yeah. I found all of this information on YouTube. There is a making of the film, Cruising, documentary... It's about 42 minutes long and about 6 minutes and 40 seconds into the documentary. That's where Friedkin starts talking about the link between Bateman and Cruising. Friedkin isn't gay, right? At least not that we know. No. Okay. I don't know what that has to do with anything. It's just all sounding a little bit sus. Like, Bateson did these things. Friedkin then made a movie around the time that Bateson was being convicted. Yeah, it's a really strange coincidence. Uh, I agree. You know, the... I mean, I, I don't want to get in any legal trouble here. Friedkin, good old Billy Friedkin is still alive after all. Speculation. But my speculation would mm -hmm. be that perhaps... Maybe Friedkin, was, maybe Friedkin was the bad killer. Oh my God, maybe he framed Bateson. Oh. Okay, no, look, we're, okay. We're, uh, we're straying into getting, getting okay. sued here. All right, Let's onward. wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. As of 2021, it is not known if Bateson is still alive, or if he is, where he's living. We do know, however, that he got out of prison. Friedkin said in a 2018 interview that he had heard Bateson was living somewhere in upstate New York. A social security record shows that a Paul F. Bateson with the same birth date and social security number issued in Pennsylvania died on September 15, 2012. Thank you for listening. Be sure to find us on all the social media at Seven Circles Podcast. If you like what you heard today, we also have a Patreon. I would love to be able to quit my day job and do this full time, so come over to our Patreon and support us. We will leave all of our links here in the description. I am Autumn Vale and my co-host is Dan Griffiths. Production, writing, and research was all done by Autumn Vale. Seven Circles Podcast is an indie podcast with music by Null Machine and art by Caroline Gates.